This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, my name is Daryl Ong and you tune in to Banan, the show that brings you through the ins and outs of the sporting world. And also this week, our monthly series where we talk about lesser known sport called That's a Sport. On the show, we're going to head to the world of underwater rugby. A sport that was invented in 1960s in Cologne, a way for scuba divers to keep fit during the winter. And like the name suggests, it's a full contact sport played in a deep pool with two teams of six players aiming to score goals by placing a negatively buoyant ball, a ball that's filled with salt water into the opponent's basket, which is located at the bottom of the pool at each end of the playing area. It's built as the only true 3D team sport where both the ball and the players can use all three dimensions, pretty much akin to flying underwater and presents much more of a mental challenge as a physical one. At a competitive level, as much as it's physically demanding, also requires strong swimming, endurance, spatial awareness and of course teamwork. And while there are no active underwater rugby clubs in Malaysia as of yet, we turn to our neighbours across the causeway to Singapore, where Asia's first underwater rugby club was created. And we're joined by its members, Genevieve Yeo, who acts as the president, as well as Isaac Tan. Well, I was looking for dive equipment at a, a dive expo, and there was somebody there um, standing there uh, at promoting an underwater rugby. Um, I was really fascinated see, seeing the videos, um, people basically playing, in essence, Quidditch underwater, mm. right? Being, um, you know, there's a deep pool, everyone was going upside down and there were players all over the place. Um, and I was also fascinated by the idea of a contact sport that was played underwater. Um, I, I assumed there would be less um, impact. Mm. So that, that really drew me to, to the sport, mm. yeah. How about you, Genevieve? Uh, yeah, for, so for me, it's kind of similar. Uh, for me, I was actually uh, going for my refresher diving course at uh, Queenstown Swimming Complex, mm. uh, which has a deep pool of uh, around four meters in depth. Then I, I was doing my refresher course there and then I saw a bunch of people, I think maybe Isaac was there, uh, training. Uh, basically, they were wearing snorkel fins and masks and I was like putting a ball at the end of the basket uh, at the depth. So I thought that was very interesting and then uh, I just walked in and uh, I was I, I just asked to join and I've been stuck since. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Now the, and now the president of the club. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so the, about doing research, I understand that it's a sport that started, actually it's not a new sport, started back in 1960 uh, in Germany. Um, Gen- Genevieve, could you just tell us a little bit about the history of uh, underwater rugby? Yeah, so uh, if you if you actually go to the CMAS, uh, which is the which is the federation uh, for all underwater sports, uh, mm. it, it was actually invented in Germany uh, in the 1960s uh, from the physical training uh, fitness regime, mm. uh, and then over time it got popular, and uh, right now it's played across uh, 17 different countries uh, in the last championship. Mm. Yeah. Not Malaysia, unfortunately. Not yet, anyway. Uh, yeah, but that's our uh, long-term goal. I, I think we want to bring the sport uh, to Malaysia. Uh, I think that's our short... Uh, in the next two years, we, we are trying to grow the sport there. Mm, great stuff. Uh, Jen, you're, you're president now, but Isaac, you were president a couple of years ago. Since you got started into in underwater rugby, and now that's getting more and more popular, how has the sport evolved since you started? 
So um, I, I started playing underwater rugby about seven years ago, right? And uh, I would say globally, the sport has changed um, in that uh, it used to be very dominated by European teams, mm. right? In particular, Swedish and uh, Norwegian teams, right? Also German, right? But over the years, um, actually, a new force has arisen in uh, South America and Colombia, right? Who are the current world champions? They just they just won both male and female competitions in Canada just like a couple of weeks ago, mm. right? Um, and uh, the style of play has also evolved um, from being, um, you know, this originating in in in, um, in Europe. The original players were actually quite large, um, you know, your, your typical, say, stereotypical burly North, Northern European players. Uh, but they've, they've evolved to become uh, much perhaps smaller, but also much faster, right? More agile players as well. And mm. it's something that we have seen um, ourselves in Singapore, <clears throat> where uh, in the past, where we would say when we compete, we will go to Australia. And we will face very often, you know, the same players, also large um, Caucasian players, mm. um, typically stronger than us. But as of late, that's, that factor has actually decreased a lot. Mm. Um, so we recently went to Australia to compete in May. And, you know, we found ourselves actually being able to hold our own against many of the Australian teams. Uh, winning our fair share of battles as well. Mm. So I would say that the the game has gone from being one of uh, very focused on physicality to one now that's really quite all-rounded. Mm. Agility and a sense of awareness is just as important as, like, say, just brute strength. Yeah, yeah, it's great that it's more diverse now. It opens the door for many other people to join, right? Uh, but on your point, Isaac, about you know Europe being the powerhouses, obviously got founded there, started from there. Um, you guys are the first club in Asia. How about uh, Asia though? Who, who other than Singapore, I guess, who are the other players uh, in underwater rugby? Uh, maybe I can answer this question. Uh, so yes, uh, just like our name suggests, uh, we are actually the first Asian team. Uh, underwater rugby club in Asia. Mm. Uh, we have had in the past few years uh, done a few exchanges uh, in China. Okay. Uh, so I believe that they do have uh, an, an, a, a club right now in Shenzhen and also in Beijing uh, or Shanghai if I'm, I'm not very sure. But uh, they are not uh, as uh, spread uh, widespread now. Mm. Uh, so I, I believe other than us only uh, in China currently. Yeah. And of course, we have Asian players uh, who are all over the world. Uh, yeah. So they do not necessarily play in their country, but they are all, uh, there are many Asians in the European clubs also. Gotcha. So there are some Asians in Australia clubs playing also. Yeah. Getting more into the game now, while looking at you know, some videos, reading about it, it seems to be more dynamic than normal rugby in the sense where opponents can be coming not just from the front and back like in normal rugby on land, but from the top too, right? Kind of sounds like flying a uh, flying spot to me isaac oh yes yes absolutely i think that is what has kept me in this sport for seven years this um idea of that that there's literally an infinite number of uh, directions you can go and an infinite number of places the opponent can come from yeah i'm not exaggerating <laughs> it's just predict right um that, that i think that is the magic of the game right um being able to Stay calm while you're holding your breath, holding a ball underwater mm. and keeping your awareness. And then at the same time, also having this proprioception, understanding that up doesn't have to be up. It can be whatever direction you want it to be. Mm. Right. And so uh, even the way we play can be infinitely creative because you can literally turn any way you want to pass the ball. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Almost like you have to have eyes in the back of your head to, to play underwater rugby. Yep, yep, and uh, you can, you can, you not that you don't necessarily to have a to be a good swimmer mm. to play on 
rugby. I think that's also the beauty of it. Like, um, unlike any racket sport, you know, where you know your left hander or right hander, yeah. uh, in underwater rugby, any hand will work. Uh, you can even use your limbs. Uh, mm. So it's what kept me in the sport also. Uh, so so underwater rugby typically six v six, right? And uh, yeah. I understand you guys have different positions as well. Uh, Jan, maybe yeah. you can just explain a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, so typically there are many team configurations, uh, but most teams uh, would usually have three different basic positions. Okay. Uh, basically the goalies, uh, who are actually the defenders. Uh, uh, sorry, I mean goalies, uh, they actually sit on the basket. On the basket. Uh, their role is to prevent the ball from being scored upon into the basket. Okay. okay. And then there are the defenders, or we sometimes call them the backs. Uh, so what happens is uh, the backs are the ones that are right at below the basket and their responsibility is uh, to protect the goalie mm. uh, who can uh, get lifted up. So we have to uh, keep our legs out and then uh, prevent the ball from getting close. Mm. And of course, we have uh, the forwards uh, who are, I would say, the fitter ones <laughs> uh, who, who can move uh, the ball anywhere and, and at a quick speed. Mm. Yeah. Give, give, give us a bit of a time frame, you know. When you're underwater, how long do you stay underwater before coming up for air? Um, I would say around 5 to 10 seconds, uh, not more than oh, that. That's if you quite can short. Hold mm. longer, mm. If you can hold longer than that, uh, yeah, you definitely have an advantage. Mm. Uh, but in a real game, because it's six aside, you actually have a substitute uh, a partner. Uh, so example, if uh, me and Isaac are playing back positions, yeah. I will be underwater first. Uh, then I hold my breath for as long as I can. Uh, he watches me in the game and uh, he substitutes me. And that's when uh, it's my turn to breathe and still watch the game. Oh, I see. So you guys take turns in that sense? Yes, we take turns, yes. Oh. And there's also tactical moves uh, or, or sequence uh, to, to follow, uh, just like in any other ball sports okay. or team sports. Yep. One one thing I, I'm really intrigued though, uh, Isaac, uh, is on communication, right? So if you're playing like rugby, verbal communication is, you know, the typical way of communicating with your teammates. Underwater though, do you guys use like sign language or, you know, what, what's, what's the game here? So um, we... We don't have time to read signs. <laughs> um, typically, um, the the best way to communicate is actually you have to you have to play with your your teammates quite often, right? right? Or, or, or over an extended period of time, and you understand in general how long this person can hold their breath, how fast they move, how much time it it, uh, it will require for them to go up and breathe, mm. right? So a lot of it is really non-verbal communication. It requires you to have your head underwater and watching the game. So if you will, a bit of mindfulness, basically. <laughs> you can't be distracted by other things, mm. right? The other thing is, well, sometimes we try to make some noises under underwater by like, say, uh, you can sort of clap your hands a little bit or try to make, uh, you know, the air bubbles go out and as a bit of a clapping noise, then, mm. then we can get attention for that. But uh, that is not very specific. So <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it can be anybody who makes that sound, right? So mm, um, mm, we don't rely on that too much. So it's more on yeah. team synergy. You guys know what you have to do, each roles. Correct, mm. correct. Mm. So the thing, um, I think something that we, we also try to uh, encourage more is uh, so a lot of people think about uh, how long they can hold their breath, right, uh, for an underwater sport. But for us, actually, our primary focus is how long you can recover from holding your breath. Okay. So um, what I mean is we don't encourage people to be staying down. Let's say you can hold your breath for four minutes. Great. But if you hold your breath for four minutes down underwater, you'll be up on the surface trying to breathe for another 10 minutes. Yeah, that's true. And then true. you're useless. Mm, that's true. Mm. So what we're looking for is this like very nice rhythm of like five to 10 seconds. You do, you go down, you do your part, you go up, you breathe and you recover very quickly. 
mm. and then go down again mm. and then just developing this like nice synchronous cycle with your with your partner got you got you uh, like you said Isaac you know it's now going away from being all brood, right, of being physical and stuff. A lot more attributes come into play. Uh, Jen, can, mm. can you just uh, tell us a little bit some of the attributes that makes a good underwater rugby player? Wow, that's such a good question. <laughs> I would say, uh, first of all, like I mentioned, uh, if you do have a swimming background, uh, that would be advantageous for you because uh, you need to have good orientation underwater. Yeah. But if you do not have, uh, that's also okay. Uh, secondly, I think you have to be very uh, adaptable. So a good underwater rugby player would be able to play uh, all three different positions okay. uh, uh, if you can. And then thirdly, I would say um, ball. I would say ball handling, ball control. Um, so yeah, so uh, I, I mean uh, Isaac over here has uh, one of the better. <laughs> I would say lah, he has good uh, ball control. And every time when I try to tackle him or get the ball off him, it's hard. Uh, <laughs> able to move the ball around, uh, mm. and mm. I think that's that's a key uh, point for a good underwater rugby. From first Asian team underwater rugby, that was Asia's first underwater rugby team with its president Genevieve Yeo as well as Isaac Tan. More of that conversation to come this week on That's a Spot, only on Barnan on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, my name is Daryl and today on the program we've been exploring underwater rugby as part of our monthly series called That's a Sport. This week we have Genevieve Yo and Isaac Tan who are from FATWUR, first Asian team underwater rugby club in Singapore, a club and association that was established in 2014 and has been almost for a decade now spreading awareness while maintaining the core community for the sport in Singapore. Underwater rugby sees players from from across cultures, ages and social divides coming together to embrace the niche sport. And new members who mostly come for the first time both with no experience in rugby but also people who haven't swam before let alone know how to dive underwater. Here's Isaac and Genevieve. Yes, actually we've had some uh, players who came in and or at least one player who had did not know how to swim yeah. when she first um, but I think a couple of things help. First, um, the fact that you get to use fins, right? Um, it definitely helps with um, the water confidence. Mm. Second is that um, a lot of the swim technique that we teach is underwater. So we look at doing, uh, we focus a lot more on kicks. So strong, mm. um, strong, um, what do you call it? Uh, finning. Yeah, strong finning. So the, the two kinds of kicks, oh, flutter kicks, sorry. Right, yeah. right. Um, flutter kicks and dolphin kicks, right? So, um, Perhaps focusing on the, the legs part makes it slightly easier for people to pick up the skill. Um, I think when you're swimming on the surface, especially say doing freestyle, a lot of people struggle with the coordination of arms and legs. Yeah. In this case, there's much less of that. Right. Although, of course, you do have to swim on the surface at some point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, so, so you're saying that in that sense, underwater swimming is a lot more easier than on the surface? Um, you could say that because if you're doing flutter kicks, Literally, all you're doing is sticking your arms out in front of you and just kicking forward. Got you, yeah. got you. Um, Jen, on to you know, the infrastructure now, the swimming pools. Um, yeah. The 
competitive swimming pool, you, the depth has to be 3.5 to 5 meters, right? Yes. And I really want to know, um, does the depth affect gameplay at all, you know, and different strategies for different depths of, of the swimming pool? Yeah, definitely. Um, so right now in Singapore, we actually have uh, access to two different pools. Uh, so like for Tuesdays, we train at MGS. So that's a 3-meter pool. Mm. Uh, I would say for a 3-meter or to 3.5, this kind of depth, uh, a game becomes more intense okay. because the space is much uh, much tighter and it's more confined. Uh, so the game is definitely more intense. Uh, as for, and then the, the training that we have on uh, Thursdays and Sundays, which is that, uh, a depth of 4 meters, uh, or even the, the recent Australian nationals that I just take part in was 5 meters. Okay. It was crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we had a lot of space. Uh, so that's good. Uh, but also, uh, when you have that amount of space, it just means you really have to cover much more areas. Mm. So it takes, uh, yeah, it takes a lot of fitness and much more fitness uh, to cover the game. Mm. Uh, which is uh, usually 10 minutes per half. Gotcha. 10 minutes per yeah. half, two halves, yeah. Um, yes. Is, is there a standard depth for competitive matches and competitive play? Um, it depends on the country that you're playing in. Mm. Uh, so depending on the pool uh, that we have booked uh, for that competition. Mm. So uh, most of the, at least for most of the pools that I know in Europe uh, or competitions that are held there, uh, they are used to more, you know, like uh, at three to four meters depth. Uh, instead, then for the Australians, uh, I would say that their pools are at a deeper side. It's usually five meters, oh, four I, to five meters. I, I yeah. see, I see, I yeah. see. Um, if a slight controversy, if you will, right, is that the recent World Cup, which was held in Canada, uh-huh. mm. so pools outside of Europe often tend to be deeper, right? And in this case, the the World Cup pool was uh, held in a five meter pool, okay, um, and it was also larger. So there were some rumblings that you know then it was um, it was conditioned so that Euro- Europeans couldn't do so well in it, and and then of course Colombia won the World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, it really does affect. Uh, but th- there is no like set from you know worldwide competitions. There's no set depth in that sense. So oh, it was pretty dynamic. Yeah, it's mm. hard to because the pools are built the way they are. Yeah, mm-hmm. mm. yeah. I think only perhaps in Norway or Sweden there are some purpose-built pools for underwater rugby, and those would be between three point five to four meters. Was it yeah. hard for you guys to find sites uh, or suitable swimming pools to conduct training at? Yes, <laughs> this is uh, always our key challenge as committees uh, for the past uh, eight to nine years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, for us, uh, we, it's very important that we have the pools. Um, yeah, it's very difficult. In Singapore, we we only have, uh, like I mentioned earlier on, we used to have three pools. Uh, right now, uh, because Queenstown is uh, on renovation, uh, so we are currently left with two pools. And I always tell the members to appreciate the training time they have uh, and to always come for trainings uh, because it's really, really hard uh, to get the pools. And mm. also, we are uh, competing with other sports uh, such as uh, synchronized swimming, yeah. uh, water polo, uh, name it. Uh, I think uh, yeah. So so it is uh, quite a challenge, and then I think it's a uh, a same problem that most of the clubs around the world are facing. Yeah. Uh, and it's not cheap. Uh, to to actually uh, build a diving pool of that depth. Uh, you know, yeah, just for the different organizations involved, lah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Many of our deep pools uh were actually built around the nineteen sixties and uh, almost some of them pre independence. So. Uh, many of them are also encountering a period of renovation re- refurbishing right now. Right. So uh, even the two pools that we have right now, one of them, we are worried that 
Uh, it, it may be under renovation soon. Mm. Yeah, and then uh, just to add on, also I think the challenge for us when we were trying to reach out to Malaysia, also I think Malaysia, I think the diving pools are also not as uh, rampant. I, I I'm not yeah. sure, but at least for the pools that I visited, I think the one that Isaac also visited, uh, the depth is like five and seven meters straight. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, okay. So I think that's the challenge. Uh, at, at least the Malaysian community is actually facing. So uh, it is our hope uh, that we can also help them uh, get mm. access to pools uh, mm. in the future. For the infrastructure will be better. Yeah. Uh, speaking of competitive play, Isaac, um, tell us a bit about the referees. You know, are they underwater or are they on top on the surface looking down? For formal competition, they will uh, always be with scuba tanks. Scuba tanks, okay. So, yeah, at least one referee will be underwater with a scuba tank, mm. right? So the way it's set up, it will be in general there'll be two water referees, right? One on either side of the court and following the length of the court, um, and then one on the surface to uh, look out for any surface infringements and also in general direct the play, I see. right? So I see. Um, it requires some coordination between the three, uh, but in general the the one who is in, with the scuba gear has the the best view. <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of, you know, um, infringements and dirty tackles, while doing research, I found out that, you know, excessive force, intentional attacks and dangerous behaviour uh, are prohibited. Um, Isaac, what would fall under these categories? I also read something about the sin bin. So, um, this, uh, there's a lot of commitment to safety in this sport because of its inherent sort of like, you know, everybody thinks, oh, I have to hold my breath and someone's going to tackle me. Yeah. <laughs> right? So there's a lot of uh, features built into the rules uh, to keep it as safe as possible. Okay. Right. So when we're talking about uh, what uh, is allowed, so yes, you can grab people in general, but there's no uh, attacking around the neck, right? There's no choking. Um, you can't grab anyone around the head. You can't touch any of the equipment. So the mask, um, the snorkel, or or even the fins, you can't touch them. The mm. second you do, um, there will be um, the referee calling for a foul. Right now, these fouls also there are two ways that they can be penal. You can be penalized. One is to give away a free throw. The other is the sin bin, which basically means you have to get out of the water and sit in that bin for uh, sit on a chair on the surface for two minutes. And your team has to survive. With one less player. Oh, for five minutes. environment, uh. yeah, for two four minutes. Now, in an environment where everything relies on actually partner play, hmm. that means it's a, a very significant disadvantage. Yeah, yeah, it, it could have a rolling effect as well, right? You know, because you're playing with five players, you have to you know work a bit harder, be more intense, and another foul could happen, right? Oh, that's yes, quite exactly that. Exactly. It's <laughs> quite insane. <laughs> but having such a drastic uh, punishment, if you will, basically makes every team very, very, they're very, very careful, mm, right? Mm. And some of the infringements also, I guess we have learned over the years. So in the past, it used to be okay to, um, so use to try and lift the goalkeeper off of the basket from the head side. Okay. Um, today, that's discouraged. And some referees will go so far as that if you so much as touch even near, anywhere near the back of the head, you're your, um, you'll be called for a foul. I see. So, yeah, I guess we try to make safety very important in this sport. For sure, for sure. Uh, on to the club now. Um, Jen, uh, tell us a little bit, you know, you guys are the first is, first in Asia. Um, how, when did it start and how did it come about? Yeah, so uh, the club started in uh, 2014 uh, by our founder uh, named Key. Uh, so he uh, found out about the sport uh, when he was studying in Australia. Yeah. Uh, and then when he came back to Singapore, uh, I think he liked the sport so much and then he wanted to play the sport basically. Uh, so he went to a pool and then uh, got a few friends and then uh, just started with, uh, I think, kills in the pool. 
mm. uh, just to, to get the game going. Uh, but he did uh, learn the sport uh, from uh, one, we, we call her the godmother in Australia. Um, she's called Celine Seinfeld, who, who actually introduced the sport when she was, uh, I think she, she, she went to Europe and then she found out about the sport there and then brought it to Australia. Mm. And from her, um, there were many, you know, like I would say 2Ds uh, that came out of it and then they, they started spreading the sport around uh, Asia and other, other parts of the world. Mm. And how, di- how diverse are, you know, the, your club members? Uh, oh. are they- uh, diverse, very diverse. So right now, we have an active membership of around uh, 57 members. Oh. And then uh, oh. this year, I was very focused on uh, recruiting new members. So every month, we do have uh, a tryout session for newcomers every second weekend. Uh, and that has proven successful. So I do have a trial, or almost 11 trial members right now, year to date. Mm. Uh, and yeah, in terms of diversity, we have people uh, as young as uh, right now, I think 14, Hazik, uh, who, who who plays the sport. And as old as uh, 66 years old. Uh, oh, his wow. name is Jimmy. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's uh, age diversity. Uh, in terms of uh, nationalities, I, uh, we have players from uh, Germany, we have players from Malaysia, Singapore, of course, and then uh, people from London. Uh, Brazil. Ma- yes, Brazil. Uh, yes, we, Brazil, the UK, New Zealand, yes. wow. uh, South right. Africa. All over the world. Japan. Mm. <laughs> correct, correct, yes. Uh, so, so I would say uh, our team is really, really, uh, our club is uh, diverse. And I think that's something I love about this uh, family. Uh, because we, I, I get to meet people from all walks of life and mm. that's why I've been in this club for about six years right now. Mm. And I'm very thankful to this club for giving me the opportunity and uh, being president is my way of giving back to the society and to the community. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really is an inclusive yeah. sport. Uh, but at the start, you know, um, was it hard to get new players? You know, that's the stigma, right? Especially, you know, for someone who's just discovering about underwater rugby that is, you know, dangerous number one and also difficult to learn um, is that stigma still around or you know has it become easier over the years as you guys spread more awareness um, I, I, I can answer that question um, so I would say uh, definitely in the past uh, I think it's it's the same right? it's, uh, when you when you learn this sport uh, I think firstly the trainers or the people that are teaching the sport is very important yeah. Um, so I would say um, it's either you love or hate the sport mm. so first of all I always tell the newcomers uh, give it a try once you give it a try you will know actually it's not that difficult to pick it up moreover uh, the equipment we have uh, you do not have to bring anything other than yourself and your swimming trunks or swimwear mm. uh, and then we have the trainers uh, uh, come teach you so the trainers uh, they are taught uh, a systematic way uh, of how to teach so basic uh, duck diving uh, and snorkeling methods will be taught uh, to learn how to perch water out. Uh, once those are, and, and of course, uh, comfortability in water. Uh, mm. And I'm a swim coach. So uh, I would say the comfortability in water is the first uh, barrier clear. Once you clear that, I think most players actually do stay on in the sport mm. to play. And mm. a lot of them stay on now because, you know, this sport is really, uh, as long as you have tenacity and the grit uh, and you have, you want to challenge yourself. I think this sport is very suitable for anyone mm. uh, to pick up. Mm. Yeah. Isaac, I really want to join but you know, for now I have to watch and speaking about watching you know, personally I feel that underwater rugby is not exactly um, the best spectator sport right? I understand the fact that you know, it, it, it being underwater has some limitations but in your opinion how can underwater rugby improve in, in this regard? I agree with you in terms of it not being um, that much of a spectator sport even if you know what's happening yeah. sometimes it's it can be messy. difficult mm. uh, because yeah the action happens very fast but something that has um improved i guess uh, for example during the world cup um the the coverage has been really great um being able 
I guess with, with better cameras, with underwater drones and all, it's actually easier to, to film this, right? Um, the other thing is that I think we can also take a, a leaf from um, the league in the in Europe. So there's an Euro League actually that broadcasts, their, uh, they, they have games uh, that involve clubs from all over Europe and yeah. they broadcast their, um, their match days, I think it's once a month, right? So uh, those are live streamed and I, in general, quite high quality broadcasts as well. So, I, I mean, in Asia, maybe it will take a while for us to get there, but hopefully, um, you know, we can achieve that standard one day as well and, and there'll be a lot more spectators. Mm. I don't know, while doing research for this, I was thinking of like a giant aquarium, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys. Because, you know, when you're watching as a spectator, you're, you're just looking at the pool, right? And I understand it's live stream and all, but it gets pretty messy sometimes. I, I get lost. I, just, I don't know what's going on. Um, but speaking of your experience in both of you in Europe, you guys have been all over the world, you know, for exposure, going for competitions and stuff like that. What have you observed about the different cultures around the, the globe, especially um, the grassroots, Jen. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, I I am not I'm not so well traveled. Uh, so I I'm quite young, honestly, in in this area. So the grassroots, uh, from my knowledge, at least when I speak with the European players, mm. uh, they also they always tell me it's a challenge uh, for them because uh, the pools and trainings are all very far apart, and it's very very hard to actually gather a team uh, to actually train for the sport. Mm. So in terms of grassroots, uh, you know, marketing or or community, I think it's fairly weak. But I I, I may be wrong. Uh, maybe Isaac can correct me if I'm wrong. But they always uh they always uh, love fat UWR marketing or exposures on podcasts and, and videos like you guys uh, yeah so I, I think uh, whenever I go over and they'll be like when are you bringing the championship to uh, Asia <laughs> uh, but I think our challenge is always the pool mm. yeah. uh, in UWR though uh, uh, in Europe are they um, is it taught is it exposed in schools and stuff like that for kids to pick up at that age not that I know of as in they are trying uh, They, I think globally um, at least the organisations or clubs that I speak, I've spoken to over the years uh, they have been trying, you know, to to create festivals, games, or yeah. uh, spots like in schools, uh, but it has been difficult because of the safety concern that you raised. Yeah, Isaac, I talk? can I can provide some uh, context for Europe. I guess for Europe, uh, I, I'm in London right now. Oh, really? I'm <laughs> 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 so holiday, but but so but what what I realized was um, in in Europe, even though there are a lot of teams, but they happen to they often are based on uh, more on a city basis or even on a town. Okay. So um, in the UK, there are a few teams. One is from London, yes, and it's the biggest one, but the others are from Cheltenham, which is a small town in Gloucestershire. Um, there's a Bristol one. I think that uh, there, there is a Cornwall one as well. But as you can see, they're from much, they're much more dispersed and from much smaller places. Mm. So in general, they don't, um, I would say, that there isn't as much of a need uh, for them to also be very marketing savvy and huge recruitment and always having a big diverse group of players. In general, what I think happens is they have a core group of players that stays mm. for a long time. Mm. Whereas in Singapore, we have a slightly different challenge. So I, I would say it's different. The grassroots is very different. <laughs> mm, got yeah. you, got you. Yeah. Um, last question, Jen and Isaac. Thanks for, first of all, for being on the program. Isaac, especially taking time off your holiday. <laughs> um, but last question, maybe Jen can go first. You know, as yep. the president of, of the club, what are your hopes, not just for the future of the club, but the scene in Asia as a whole? 
Mm, yeah, my hope obviously uh, is is actually for the sport uh, to pick up in uh, the different parts of Asia, mm. uh, of course our neighboring country in Malaysia. Yes, yeah. Then hopefully in Thailand, uh, Philippines, and then uh, we would uh, have visions on the Sea Games. Yeah, yeah, and then hopefully you know if if bigger, dream bigger, Commonwealth Games or Olympics Asian then games. Olympics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think uh, for for me lah, if if the sports is spread across, I I basically have more opportunities to play. Mm. I would like to play this until uh, I age. <laughs> Great stuff, Isaac. Uh, I think my vision is very much the same as Jens. I'd love to see this um, spread across Southeast Asia, perhaps as part of the Sea Games. Perhaps the other thing is I, I love for Asia to be seen as a hub for underwater rugby as well. So instead of us going over there to elsewhere to compete, um, love to see others coming uh, to us, I guess, to compete as well. That was Isaac and Genevieve from Asia's first underwater rugby team in Singapore, Fat UWR. And with that, we've come to the end of this week's program and our monthly series called That's a Sport. If you'd like to revisit that interview, you can head over pretty soon to our website www.bfm.my forward slash bar none. And if you'd like to get in touch with the program, you can tweet us at BFM Radio. My name is Daryl Ong and this has been Bar None, the show that brings you through the ins and outs of the sporting world. And we'll see you next week, only here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.